We're thankful that you're here. Man, this is an awesome place to be this morning. Can I get an amen? amen. The worship. Uh, we've got the friendliest guest right here, Thomas. I'm going to point you out. I think if he just met everybody in the room, so welcome. We need you to come back every Sunday. Can you do that? I don't think he live, lives in Memphis. Can you move here? If anybody's got a job, that I don't even know what you do, but we'll make it work, Thomas, okay? Uh, we love your spirit. Um, good, special people are here, some back for the first time since this pandemic hit this morning. Uh, thanks for trusting this family uh, to be here for you, be patient. Um, Randy and Lindsay, I just saw you guys walk in uh, back from the Middle East for a while. We love you guys and so glad that, that you're here worshiping with us. Man, God is good. It's just a great place to be. Uh, another great place to be is a mountain. And for the first time in a long time, a bunch of people went and climbed a mountain without me this week. Uh, for most of you, you know that I have been a youth minister, was a youth minister for a, a lot of years, and starting in 1997, started doing wilderness trek, or a week where we climb mountains, and this past week, our seniors, they went and climbed a mountain with the new youth minister, and uh, with an awesome crew of adults, and I see Carl right over there, faithful guide. <clears throat> so it's kind of a weird experience to uh, see pictures of trek and I'm not in it. Anybody else ever have some of those moments? You're like, oh, that's kind of that's strange. But it just takes me back to mountaintop moments. And uh, this morning, I think our text is kind of a mountaintop moment. Before we get there, there were some moments that are not mountaintop moments, even though they happen on mountaintops. Like uh, Melanie Parent is one of our faithful adults that goes every year, and we boil water to heat up our uh, meals on trek. And what you should never, ever do is spill a pot of boiling water on someone's bare feet. And I did that to Melanie Parent uh, last time we went on trek. So that was a mountaintop moment, but it wasn't, it happened on the top of a mountain, but it wasn't a mountaintop moment. Uh, I remember we were on the mountaintop, uh, my first trek ever, and <clears throat> back towards camp, uh, we're on the mountaintop. This is camp. This is not camp. Clear blue skies over here, not such clear skies over here. And a huge snowstorm came in and snowed us off the mountain, and we had to go down this way and hike for another 12 hours. That, was, that happened on the mountaintop, but it was not a mountaintop moment, you know what I mean? Uh, a lot of people here have heard stories about the year we got struck by lightning. That was not a mountaintop moment. It happened on top of the mountain. It really didn't get struck by lightning more we just kind of had a brush with lightning, maybe a slight kiss of, of lightning. Uh, our hair did stand up on end. We felt something and we started running. So that happened on the mountaintop, but not necessarily a mountaintop moment because a mountaintop moment is when you feel like a longing that you've been waiting for has finally been fulfilled. I was born in Wisconsin. The Milwaukee Bucks just won the NBA championship for the first time in my lifetime. I'm 47 years old, so I just missed the first go-round, and even though I'm a Grizzlies fan now, but it was still pretty cool to see the, the team I rooted for as a child to finally have this mountaintop moment and to see the Deer District just going crazy. So <clears throat> this morning, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 8, and this is a mountaintop moment. 
even though it doesn't actually happen on the top of a mountain, it actually happens in a valley in between two mountains, but two really significant mountains. So if you'll open up your Bible to Joshua chapter 8, we're going to spend a few minutes digging into the Word this morning. Joshua 8, verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites, he built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions, to bless the people of Israel. Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. Let me spread the context out just a little bit. We're in a series where altars are set up And altars are set up because they remind us of the stories that we've lived in the past, and they also direct the stories that we're going to live into the future. And this story is a story that if you just take this moment in between these mountains, it's a cool moment. But if you take the context of all of Scripture into this, you kind of get blown away by God's power and God's faithfulness and God's promise-keeping ability. Because this story actually starts in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, Abram, or as we come to know him, Abraham, is called by God. And he's called to go somewhere, (laughs) and he doesn't know where he's called to go, but it's this huge step of faith where God is beginning to to develop a people that he can call his own, who can demonstrate to the world what it looks like to be the sons and the daughters of the one true God. And in Genesis 12... Uh, Abram or Abraham sets up an altar because the Lord appeared to him there. So it's in the calling story of Abraham that this place, Shechem, uh, near Ai or Ai, depending on how you learned it growing up, but at the foot of Mount Ebal, this incredibly historic place, that's where this story starts. So 600 years before this story we just read in Joshua 8, God comes to Abraham and says, In this place, to you, your descendants, your offspring will call this home. This land will belong to them. And it only took 600 years to get there. That's a long time. I looked up what happened in 1421 in preparation for this sermon. I don't think anything happened. there's There's all kinds of stuff that happened in 1421, 600 years ago. But not anything that we really register with. That's a long time to keep your promise. And so fast forward, not quite 600 years, but to the freedom that came to the Israelites after they've been delivered from Egypt. So Abraham, if you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, Abraham was where God started his people. And Abraham's descendants 
became fruitful, they multiplied, they moved to Egypt, they became a threat to the empire, and so he enslaved them. And then God raised up this next person to call, and that, that man was named Moses. And so Moses <clears throat> oversees the deliverance that God provides to Israel. And in Deuteronomy 27, which is the whole basis of what happens for Joshua 8, in Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29, there's this incredible ceremony, this covenant renewal, or this covenant moment, where all the Israelites stand before God, Moses mediates, and basically say, we are for you, we will live for you, we will obey you, and if we don't, there will be curses upon us and upon our people for generations to come. They are not playing around in Deuteronomy 27. And Moses, at this point in time, Joshua is going to be his successor. So in Deuteronomy 27, Moses tells Joshua, when you get, when you cross the river, in, I want you to go to the foot of Mount Ebal, and I want you to renew the covenant, and I want you to read all the words that are in this book. I want you to read all the law, and I want you to remind the people, one, what God has done, and two, what we're to do in response to what God has done. So this little passage, these five verses in Joshua chapter 8, they, they can't really stand alone without you understanding Abraham was kind of the seed of this. And then Moses had said, do this when you get there. When you get to this place we've been waiting for, this is what I want you to do. So Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are this incredible, incredibly important geographical place. And 600 years later, Joshua sets up an altar. Because remember, altars remind us kind of where we've been and they help lead us where we're going. And one of the interesting things about these altars that are set up, not in the temple, but out in the fields, you're supposed to use stones that are uncut. They're not supposed to have an iron tool as a part of the craftsmanship of them. We don't really know why. Uh, we think maybe it's related to some other pagan practices. And when Israel came into the promised land, when they came into Canaan, they were, they were trying to set themselves apart. So anything that might resemble pagan worship or a diff worship of a different god, that's what we don't do. But there's this other kind of theory that's out there. I don't know if this is right, but I like it. And I think it preaches. And it's this, that if you have an altar that's made of cra perfectly crafted, expertly crafted stones, uh, you may be tempted to worship the person who made it instead of the one who put the stones there in the first place. And so even in this moment, and this moment, by the way, is a, a moment of victory because the Israelites, they had just conquered Jericho. They had messed up and not conquered Ai or I. And then they figured it out. They found the sin in the camp with Achan. They righted the wrong. They went back. They conquered I. So they've just had these, these two moments where they've had victory and promises have been fulfilled and in this moment it may have been a temptation to pat themselves on the back and I think even with the altar down to the details of the altar Joshua points people to God and there's a real emphatic sense in all of this that all the words 
that Moses said do, all the things that Moses said do, all the words of the Lord, he did them all. And then he copies, he makes his own copy of the law because the word of God is so important in the lifeblood, the lifeline of Israel's life that if they get that wrong, nothing else matters. If they forget what God said, nothing else matters. They can't become the people that God wants them to be. No matter how great they've done, and they haven't really done that great, am I right? <laughs> like if you read up till then, there's a lot of, these Israelites, I like them because they're a lot like me and they're a lot like you, am I right? There's a, there's a lot of flawed people in these stories. And so God's the hero, God's the faithful one. And, and the thing that holds true other than God's presence is God's word and God's words from story to story, from generation to generation. God's words hold true in Genesis 12, 600 years before this. And God's words hold true in Deuteronomy 27. And God's words are going to hold true here in Joshua when they renew the covenant. And so Moses makes, or I'm sorry, so Joshua kind of in the vein of Moses and by the instructions of Moses, he makes a copy of the law and they cover the stones in plaster so that the law and the word of God can be displayed for all to see as a marker. This is who we are. This is what we're about. One interesting thing too, uh, everybody's there. And I love this because sometimes we get a little bit siloed I think in the, in the church today, in being God's people, we've kind of got this church or that church or this generation or that generation. And in this moment, God realizes everybody's apart. And so women, children, and foreigners living among them are all listed. You've got the Levitical priest, the Ark of the Covenant, and half of the tribes on Mount Ebal, half of the tribes on Gerizim, pronouncing blessings and curses. But God's promises, God's words, they're for everybody. And the whole community's got to live together by those words for the community, for the people to become the people of promise. And I love that foreigners <clears throat> living among them and native-born are giving special attention because in all of God's sacred assemblies, everywhere that the word of God is preached, there are dominant cultures and then there are minority cultures and sometimes if we're in a dominant culture we forget just how significant how important and how outside sometimes people feel if they're a minority in that setting am i right and so god has always and will always give special care to people who <clears throat> maybe weren't born into uh, his family or may not have a, a birthright into it as some of us kind of had that were born on the pew. And so <clears throat> the word is preached. It's this incredible, beautiful assembly. And in this moment, <clears throat> there's three things I think that are kind of helpful for us to take away. One is I think this obedience is a pathway to blessing. Obedience is a pathway to blessing. And I, this is a, a little bit tricky because I, let me just say, offer my disclaimer, I think you can do everything according to the way God wants you to and bad stuff will still happen to you. So that is not what I'm saying. This is not kind of a health and wealth 
prosperity gospel where if you just do what God says, everything's going to be great. But I do think living according to God's commands, it's, it's a fruitful pathway that does provide blessing. Maybe not always the blessings we want, but it does provide blessing. And I think it's really clear <clears throat> that when you, if, and in my life, when I've lived in disobedience to God, I feel it. I know it. I'm not in my right headspace. I'm angrier. I'm more frustrated. I'm short with people. I'm more judgmental. And that's just the stuff I'm telling you about. But when I live faithful to the commands of God, there is blessing in my life. Everywhere I look, I see God's blessings. And because obedience is a, is a pathway to blessing, uh, sometimes we want to question what God is saying, uh, but sometimes we just have to trust that what God has said is all we're going to get, and that's enough. I was kind of thinking about that, just questioning, you know, what God makes. Um, a lot of you know my wife, Stacy. She's uber-talented. She can do lots of different things. One of the things that she's done over the past couple years is she's, She's got a baking business, and she makes a lot of really delicious things. She makes these things, these salted caramel bars. There you go. I was waiting for that, Darren, and Darren Ruddy and Cheryl are big fans of the salted caramel bars. And one of the le least intelligent things I could ever do is take that recipe from Stacy, who created the recipe and knows and kind of has created perfection there, and say... I think I'm going to change it. I think I'm going to make my own recipe. That's, that would be kind of ridiculous. So sometimes we take God's commands, God's words, and we say, ah, I think I'm going to rationalize this. I think I'm going to twist this. I think I'm going to kind of make it my own. And that's not, that is not put us, put us on a pathway to blessing. It's the, the pathway of disobedience is the opposite of that. We've got to really be careful of that. And in this really grace-filled church that we have, which I'm so grateful for, sometimes <clears throat> obedience is not a good word. We don't really focus on that. But obedience is a good Bible word. In fact, it's a good gospel word. As long as the obedience is truly obedience to God and not to the laws or the rules or the rituals that we sometimes make up and we call them God. But obedience to God... The Great Commission is uh, discipling people, teaching them to obey everything Jesus says that I've taught you. Obedience puts you on a path to blessing. Secondly, God will make a way. God will make a way. 600 years, <laughs> generations, and wandering, and failures, and in this moment, God makes a way and he plants the people of Israel right where he started 600 years earlier with Abraham. And he brought them through all kinds of famine and disease and slavery and dysfunction. And God somehow made a way. If you had asked Joshua, how did we get here today? How did you eat for 40 years in the wilderness? He would have said, God just made a way. We woke up in the morning, and there it was. 
manna. And then we had quail. And we ate. Every day, we ate. Didn't know how that was going to happen. There was no plan for food in the wilderness. But God will make a way. And I know in my life, and I'm sure someone's life that's listening or watching today, you feel like you're just stuck. You feel like there is no way out of whatever bondage or whatever oppressive moment or trial that you're in. But Joshua comes to you in the valley between Ebal and Gerizim, and he says, God can make a way in ways we never could have imagined. And then finally, God's word is the final word. God's word is the final word. Joshua didn't approve upon, improve upon God's words from Moses a generation earlier. He brought God's words just as they were. And I know there's lots of cultural variations to God's words, and it's sometimes difficult to go into Leviticus and say, okay, this is God's word. What about the mixing, the blending of different types of fiber into clothing? Is that really, is that still a sin? I don't know. Like, there, there are some ways to navigate understanding which words of God are, are, are meant for then and which words are timeless. And you've got to be really careful with that. But ultimately, God's word, what God spoke, what God said, is Jesus. That's why Jesus is called the, the, the word, the logos. He is what God says. When God opens his mouth, Jesus comes out. That's kind of the imagery of John chapter 1 when Jesus is referred to as the Word. And so even though there's a lot of little landmines that we kind of navigate when we talk about applying Scripture from an ancient document into today, I gain a lot of... of, of uh, I feel a lot better about faith. I feel a lot better about God when I realize Jesus is the final word. And so that's it. And Jesus said, he summed up the law and the prophets by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. I think all those other little things matter too in the law and the prophets. They have a, they have a point. They had a point then. They have a bearing on our lives now. But ultimately, Jesus is the word and it's God's final word. And Jesus said, I won't leave you alone and I'm coming back. I won't leave you alone and I'm coming back. So we move to a table where we're reminded of the promises of God and the promise of Jesus. So if you have your communion, if you remembered to pick it up on your way in this morning, if you didn't, you're welcome to go grab it off a table. Or if you're at home with us, wherever you are and whatever you've got prepared this morning, I just want to call us to a table. And by the way, we're going to sing a song after we take communion uh, together. And if, if you want to uh, respond, there will be a shepherd right outside the doors that you can pray with. And one of our shepherds will lead a prayer in a minute. But, but Jesus hosts us this morning. And when Jesus, the final word of God, when he hosted that table originally, he said, I, I'm not going to drink this cup or eat this bread until I come in anew to the kingdom. 
And so we're kind of in this stuck point, right? We're where the Israelites were. We're where every generation was between Abraham and Joshua, where they were waiting for a promise fulfilled. And we live in that tension. Jesus has come. Jesus will come. And in the meantime, we're reminded to be obedient to him that he will make a way. And we can live in the blessing of what's to come in the here and now. So I'm going to lead a prayer and then we'll take communion together and have a, a few moments and then we'll sing a song. So will you pray with me, please? God, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for generation after generation, uh, your memory being better than ours. And as we join you at this table that you host this morning, thank you that you've never forgotten uh, your promise to never leave us. And we look forward to a day where we can eat this with you anew and, and fully in your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.